This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Emily, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? I'm Nina, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Naira, Ellie, and Joanna. I'm just giving you a brief overview of what we're going to cover today. So one, what is vaccine hesitancy? How many people are hesitant? And who is that? The second will be, why are people hesitant? What are the predictors of hesitancy? And lastly, what are the concerns and what's the truth? Let's get into it. At a glance, I think it's always great for everybody to sort of start off on the same footing. So here will be the terminology we'll be using. A vaccine is a product stimulating a person's immune system to produce immunity to a specific disease, protecting the person from the disease. Vaccination, the act of, of introducing a vaccine into the body to produce immunity to a specific disease is immunization. It's also synonymous with vaccination and inoculation. These three definitions come from the CDC. And the final definition, which is vaccine hesitancy, is defined by the World Health Organization as a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite availability of vaccination services. This phenomenon has been reported in more than 90% of countries in the world. So looking at vaccines at a glance, you guys know who this guy is? It's cool if you like wouldn't just recognize his face. Don't worry. If you don't recognize his face, this is Edward Jenner, the vaccine pioneer. If you're not super familiar with the story or if it's been a while since you've heard the story, he noticed that milkmaids didn't get smallpox at a time where plenty of people would get smallpox and either be severely scarred or would die from it. He decided that he would sort of like take some of the pus from people who had cowpox and end up like scraping the skin. He's the father of immunology and he really kind of kickstarted the whole vaccine thing itself. And people started thinking more about it after him. So thanks to hundreds of years of research, medicine, public health efforts all coming together, we have vaccines that present or that prevent more than 20 life-threatening diseases. Per the World Health Organization, immunization currently prevents two to three million deaths every year from preventable diseases. We are in the United States and immunizations are actually pretty big here, but we don't realize that sometimes in countries where they're not as tightly regulated or even in recent years where you've had people opting out of them, we don't realize how much we actually end up losing or what we stand to lose when we're not vaccinated. But per the World Health Organization, per UNICEF, two to three million people per year are saved from preventable deaths because of vaccination. This is from the CDC, and this is just a list of vaccines that you would get. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just kind of the vaccines that you're supposed to get. I don't know how many of you guys have traveled out of the country or have been other places, but if you're like me, you probably have like yellow fever vaccine and you have a couple other vaccines that might not be listed here as well. So as you can see at the bottom, and you can go onto the CDC's website and actually look at this. So for diseases that you almost forgot about thanks to vaccines, there are 16 diseases that are here. So chicken pox, mumps, rotavirus, whooping cough, everything in the second um, column, and then nearly everything in the last column. Meningitis and HPV are the two that we still consistently talk about, we don't think about despite the fact that we have vaccinations for them. I guess the question is, if we have vaccines that prevent these issues, then what's the problem, right? Well, just because we live in the information age doesn't mean that there is a disinformation, right? So the thing is, people are vaccine hesitant for many reasons, and Naira will get more into that in her section, but whether it is maybe being scared of the science, maybe not trusting the science, not understanding the science, maybe cultural or ethnic history with certain things. People have a lot of apprehension about vaccines, right? So when you also live in an age where you can Google anything you want, literally within seconds, 
you can be connected to people literally across the world within seconds. But with that being stated, there's tons of information out there and all information is not good. What I remember in high school, they were really big on what's considered a scholarly source when we wrote our research papers and we wrote our thesis papers. All sources are not scholarly sources. All sources aren't good sources of information. And the problem is when you don't know something or you don't know better, or you're already kind of nervous about things, disinformation can be much worse. And we've actually seen vaccine hesitancy grow, not because people don't necessarily believe in the science, but they can't always trust in the science or they don't know better. And they defer to people who may or may not have great intentions. In 2019, two years ago, the World Health Organization named vaccine hesitancy as one of the top global health threats alongside air pollution, climate change, below satisfactory primary health care, and HIV. As you can see, this is actually really serious because this is right before the pandemic and the World Health Organization was saying that vaccine hesitancy is a really big deal and it stands to set back decades of progress. If you guys do some advocacy work like I do, one of the big things that we did whenever we had our congressional meetings this year was talk about the fact that with COVID-19, we've gone back decades in terms of progress whenever you come to immunizations for different people, right? Because not everybody's trusting them or you don't always have access to it. So per The Guardian, more than 50% of the state saw a decline between 2009 and 2019 in kindergarten vaccination rates against diseases like measles, rubella, etc. When I started kindergarten, they were very, very adamant about having my vaccination records. There were no such things as exemptions unless you were like immunocompromised, you didn't get exemptions. From what I've been told, that's not the case anymore. As you can see, there are plenty of people who maybe can't be vaccinated for reasons and people who choose not to be vaccinated or their parents choose not to vaccinate them can stand to be a problem for people who cannot be vaccinated. Out of the 50 states, 26 are reported as having vaccination rates that fell below the target of 95%. And that's the rate that experts state is needed to provide maximum protection against diseases. So what does this mean in context, right? Because you've heard a bit of this, but what do these numbers actually mean? There was an actual survey that took place in February 2019, of course, just before the pandemic, and it was published, I want to say, a couple months after the pandemic started. And it noted that parents with children that were surveyed across the nation had these vaccine attitudes. 6.1% were hesitant about routine childhood vaccinations. Just under 26% were hesitant about flu vaccines. 70% strongly agreed that routine childhood vaccines are effective versus just over 25% for the flu vaccine. So let's rewind that for a second, right? 70% of parents agreed that childhood vaccines were effective. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have never had measles. <laughs> I have never had certain diseases. And that's because everybody's been vaccinated around me or I've been vaccinated. Maybe I'm not a danger to somebody else or somebody's not potentially a danger to me. But you only have 70% of parents who were surveyed that agreed that they were effective. But what do these percentages mean? That means one in 15 US parents are hesitant about routine childhood vaccinations. So when we talk about hesitancy, we have to think about the environment that people are in. We have to think about all of these external factors that really go into it, right? Because if your parents question these, maybe you're going to question them as well, or maybe that's not where your faith will be. Or if your friend feels this way, then maybe you may sway that way as well. Vaccine hesitancy isn't just not trusting the science. Sometimes it is trusting and deferring to people who don't know any better or believe that they know better than actual scientific officials or medical officials. Now that you understand that people are hesitant, what happens if people are already hesitant about tried and true vaccines and a public health crisis pops off, like the one that we're living through? Well, here are three pictures. 
and they're all from different eras. I'm going to assume the one that says smallpox and measles is probably mid 40s to mid 50s. Less of a menace for the rubella one, which is the middle, I would say is 69 or 70. And then this one is more recent. So if you just look at these three things and you just look at the framing of them, do you guys notice anything different within the framing of these things? I think one thing to zero in on is one, yeah, the last one is very open-ended. Two, those two are very societal, right? Join the fight. Like we're all together and we're fighting this thing together. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are fami familiar with like the middle image, that's Dennis the Menace. I grew up like reading enough comic books and like seeing Sunday comics here and there. Obviously this is before my time, but it's the idea of being less of a menace to society because you're now vaccinated, right? So this idea of we're all in this together, we're doing our part for these first two in a very passive way. And then in the last one is getting back to the moments we miss, right? That's entirely different from joining the fight or you're less of a menace. The first two are very social contract focused, whereas the last one's very individualistic, right? And beyond that, the first two are more or less, you're fighting against this threat. You see like in the first one, they had arrows to fight against this barbarian, smallpox or measles, the middle, this child being armed with a stethoscope, right? Like you can trust the medical profession. And in the very last one, this idea of getting informed, being persuaded to literally seek out information to then trust this vaccine. Whereas the first two are less about, this is why you should trust it and more you should trust it, right? So it's sort of this persuasive thing and just looking at that. So vaccine hesitancy in the era of COVID-19. So this comes from the Kaiser Family Foundation. The darkest color are people who are already vaccinated. The second darkest will get the vaccine as soon as they can. The cornflower blue would be wait and see, then only if required. And then lastly, the teal would be definitely not get the vaccine. But as you can kind of see here, like this is the total US population. This is the U.S. breakdown by age. Now, of course, we know older people were given the vaccine first across the nation than younger people were. But I think it's also really interesting whenever you see these age groups, you look at the people who only get it if required or definitely not get the vaccine versus older people. And part of that has to do with the fact that, again, these older people have lived through an era where there wasn't a vaccine for polio, where people were still getting vaccinated against measles. When you're living through something like that, it would make sense that about 11% of the population would only get it if required or definitely not get it versus say 24% of people within the age bracket of a good number of people on this call. It also has it by party affiliation. It also does it by race. These were a bit closer actually than I would have expected and I will get more into that in a bit, but at least for me, I thought they were a bit closer than I expected and I was pretty happy to actually see where it was. Here, they're by gender. This kind of came out to be as I thought it would be. Educational level was interesting. You have healthcare workers. So you have about 10% of healthcare workers that would only get it if required or definitely not get the vaccine. So again, that's one of those things that is there a reason maybe some people are hesitant? Well, if you see a healthcare worker saying, well, I'm not going to get it if I don't have to. Again, people tend to defer maybe to one voice or to one person who may not always be best informed, you may have a personal agenda, right? And then you have community types here. So what happens if you're not vaccinated? On the front end, right, because we've talked about vaccine hesitancy and we've talked about why it's important, especially in the era of COVID, if you have access to it, it does make sense to just be vaccinated. You are still at risk for COVID-19 if you are not vaccinated, right? Just because cases have not been spiking for the past few months does not mean that you are not at risk. It, again, we have people who are asymptomatic, plenty of people are. There are indefinite policy measures. Something that I feel sad about is that 
grad school has not been fun when you're doing it online. And remembering high school, I can't imagine any of that stuff prepping for AP exams. That would not be fun if I had to do it online. I'd probably be in tears consistently. But as this pandemic continues, because we can't necessarily have definite measures, you're constantly having things scaled back and then reintroduced to account for the rise and fall of the disease. You allow others to be put at risk for COVID and impact the last after COVID. As I was stating, there are people who are asymptomatic or some people don't have symptoms for a long time. I had COVID in late 2020 and I was technically only really sick with like an actual fever for maybe two or three days. I would marginally say that the flu was worse. I had an annoying cough for like two weeks, but I wasn't sick for one or two weeks and didn't have anything really serious. But just because it wasn't serious then didn't mean it could not have been more serious and it doesn't mean there aren't long-term impacts from it. So The Lancet, which is a medical journal, the second most notable one in the world, noted that six months after COVID infection, around one third of individuals had a neurological or psychiatric diagnosis. So please think about that. You guys may be asymptomatic if you're moving and you're going to do something, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't impact people. There are plenty of people who are asymptomatic, kind of going and doing stuff that maybe don't trust the vaccine or don't want to get the vaccine or they don't see the point in it. But if you understand that you're putting other people at risk for a disorder that potentially could lead to something way worse in the future, would you not rethink it? And then lastly, the micro and macroeconomic cost society. So there's an entire branch of economics regarding this, health economics, this is what I do. So at a health end, it is more expensive, obviously, if you're going to the hospital. It is just a preventive measure because you're not billed for the COVID vaccine. Like this is a national effort. You're not billed for it. That's entirely different from going to the hospital three months from now and you may need a ventilator or you may need different breathing services, which are definitely going to cost far more than a vaccine. Financially in society, again, the longer that people have to work at home, certain functions can't happen. If you've worked in anything private equity, investment banking, a lot of that stuff kind of came to a standstill at first, sort of getting off the ground. There was one point last year where like oil, crude oil was trading in the negatives, which has never happened before. There's an economic cost to everything and the fact that we can't be out and we can't actually function as we used to as much as we may have adapted. And then lastly, and I haven't written it here, but like I noted before, the social contract, right? Like it's just a good thing to take care of other people in society. And when you're not vaccinated, I would honestly broadly state that you're not actually abiding by the social contract because you're not doing the best that you can do on behalf of society, you are doing for yourself only. And individualism is not always terrific whenever you're living in a society, right? So if you're not vaccinated, there are plenty of ramifications for other people. But again, why don't people want to be vaccinated? Well, there are tons of reasons why. And I am going to hand it over to Naira to talk more about why vaccine hesitancy is happening and what we can do to sort of combat it. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you co-host. I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room. You're breaking up again, Ellie. The recording has stopped. Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank Science Education and Policy Association for their support.